The sky is slowly lightening and the tide has gone out, widening the length of the beach. The fire has burned down low and many of the women in the circle lean forward seeking its ebbing warmth. The stars have faded from the sky, but not the stories that have been told this night. The elder taps her staff three times solidly on the ground, gathering the attention of the women before her, and locking eyes with the regal woman calls out, Queen, you are the power and authority in all women. Whether you rule a court or simply your home, your wisdom is key to personal development. You have many who seek to counsel you, to sway your hand and corrupt your rule. Often your circle of friends is filled with traitors, rivals, and backstabbers. How do you determine what is true? What tools do you use to make decisions when they affect all? And where do you find the ability to trust in yourself? I am the queen. I express the divine feminine, a leader with the qualities of grace, wisdom, and strength. I excel at building relationships, gestating and birthing new ideas and avenues. I seek to cultivate purpose and increase empowerment among women. I desire a centered calm that allows for direction and insight. My sovereignty serves the whole by being able to see the unseen and lead the blind and fearful. If I am to lead and protect the people I rule, I need a diet of self-love, nourishment, and support. Without the right type of food, I risk becoming a shadow queen, striving only to protect my personal and emotional power. Often I am chosen by my people, but I can also be created through personal maturity and growth. Sisters, listen to my story of becoming a queen in The Waterbringer. Deep in the hot sands of the desert, a tribe of people lived below ground. In the desert, there was no water. None from the skies, none from the plants, none from any streams or rivers. And yet, a people still managed to survive in the barren wastelands of yellow sand. They found their source of water below ground, in the caves and caverns chiseled from stone and rock, buried and forgotten long ago. But even there, there was no water. No, the water came from one woman of the tribe. She was old and wrinkled, her mind long gone, but still she provided for her people. She lay on a stone shelf in the heart of the caves, with the rock walls dark around her. Her long arms stretched down to a pool of water beside her, a pool of her own making. For in her dreams she created water, water for her people, water for the desert. And she was the only one who dreamed among her people. For dreams were where the water could be found, but it was also where one could be lost. And this was why the woman had no mind, no memory, no life. Her body lived and breathed, but she was lost in dreams, lost in the world of water and rain. There was no rain in the desert, so why would she ever return to it? The lure of dreams was too great, and so the tribe took great pains to make sure that only one of them was captured by its pole. The woman was old and wrinkled now, but she had not been when she first began to dream. And the appearance of dreams, strange night visions seen by no one else, always signaled the arrival of a new water bringer. While the emergence of dreams could begin any time between the ages of 8 to 12, it was always a female who would see things in the night. 
The tribe was not sure why, but only women seemed able to access this dream world. Mothers of boys were happy at this, as they did not need to fear losing their sons. But when a girl began to speak to her mother of seeing strange visions at night, it was with a heavy heart her mother would bring the girl before the elders. They would ask her about the sight. Often she would describe things no one had ever seen. A great tumbling flow of water, so loud one had to cover their ears. Or a jar of water so large and so big the other side could not be seen. With this confirmation, they would lead the girl down the long stairs, down to the hot caves. They shielded the girl's eyes as they passed the cavern, which held the current water bringer, wrinkled and empty, not long for this world. They would not want to frighten the young girl, especially since there was no way for the girl to escape her fate. She could not be anything other than what she was. So they nestled her into the stone wall on a flat expanse, with an empty dip below. They had her remove her clothes, and then draped a gossamer cloth of white over her, and bid her close her eyes. Sleep, brought by the heat of the cave and the resonance of those who had come before her, would descend upon the girl. Waves crashed over her and swept her out to the place of cisterns overflowing with water. She bathed in it, delighted in it, and as her mind splashed in a place far from the desert, water began to roll down the inside of her arm. The elders stretched out her fingers and one by one, drops of water began to fall down into the empty well. Drop after drop followed, and over hours, days, and weeks, the well began to rise. And though the girl was happily lost in the land of plenty, the tribe recognized her sacrifice. She would never return to her body, her mind lost forever. But her people would survive. But this was also why the bodies of the water bringers were placed on high shelves above the water tables. For once a month, the women of the tribe would come down to the caves. And though they were grateful for their sacrifice, seeing a young girl of twelve, a life unlived behind her eyelids, or worse, the wrinkled bones of an old woman, whose eyes had not seen the sun for more than sixty years, it was too much to look upon, especially for mothers, born and unborn, lost and kept. And though they knew that the girl was happily lost in dreams, they still mourned the loss of her. The monthly women's visit to the wells was not only to pay homage to the sacrifice of the water-bringers, but also to purify the water. Though the water-bringer created the water, and the drops from her body nourished the tribe, when it left her body it was not ready to drink. The land of dreams was a mysterious place, and when the water left that realm and took form in this corporal world, it was liquid but tainted with poison. This poison was what consumed the body of the dreaming water-bringer, breaking down her bones and skin. Water-bringers did not live past the age of 30, though they appeared much, much older. But with the help of the rest of the tribe's women, the water could be made fit to drink. Once a month they filed down the worn stone steps to the caverns. They walked past the graves of the older water-bringers, their eyes on their feet, partly to see the path and partly to avoid the necessity of life. When they reached the current water pool, they all disrobed and unbound their hair. They formed a border around the square pool. The thin arm of the water bringer draped over the side of the shelf above, droplets of water forming on her fingertips. Then they all knelt before the cistern, and with their heads bowed, flipped their hair into the poisoned water. There was a certain property found only in the female's hair, never the men's, that the poison bound itself to. 
The women would sing songs that echoed around the chamber as they struggled to maintain their exhausting position. For three hours they had to hold their heads as such. If anyone removed their hair before it was time, they all would suffer. For it was the combined efforts of them all and their hair that filtered the poison. Too few strands of hair and the poison would snake its way up the hair follicles and claim the lives of the women. For this reason also, girls who had not had their first blood yet were not allowed in the cave. They did not have the stamina to maintain the pose and would endanger the rest of the women. The mark of becoming a woman for a girl was her hair having turned blue from filtering the poison in the caves. And so month after month, the women of the tribe came down the steps and paid their vigil before the pond. And they saw how the water and they saw how the water bringer grew thinner and thinner. They also noticed that the water table was dropping lower and lower, and the poison was taking longer and longer to filter out. Soon their necks and knees were aching from five hours prostrating themselves on the hot stone. Some had nearly passed out from being in the heat for so long, but the thought of harming their fellow sisters kept them upright and holding on. Now the women knelt shoulder to shoulder so they could lean on one another should they feel they would fall. There were other indicators that something was not right among the tribe. Fighting broke out over small things, and children had a hard time sleeping. The water level seemed to be dropping faster than the water bringer was able to replenish it. The elders checked, but no one was taking more than their share of water. There was no reason for the imbalance. Then one morning the village woke to find their water bringer was dead, leaving no one to take her place. This had never happened before. There had always been an overlap between the old and new bringers. They had never needed to select a dreamer. The decision had always been made for them. The people were lost and afraid. The water level dropped lower and lower while they bickered about what course of action to take. It was estimated that they would run out of water by the end of the month if they did not replace the water bringer soon. But how would they create a water dreamer? The chosen had always been sent ahead of time. Some argued that they should wait, show faith in the desert to send them what they needed. But others said that they had to make a choice. They could not idly wait. The elders were unsure how to create one who would dream for them. But there was a pregnant woman among them that was a few days away from birth. Perhaps if she visited the waters and bathed her swollen stomach, the dreams would call to her child. The woman was grieved to have this responsibility thrust upon her. But she also knew that if they did not find a solution, not only would she die, but her child too. The elders led the woman down the stairs with her bulging belly and into the water. They prayed and chanted, hoping the water would call to her unborn child. But the poison in the water triggered birthing pains, and the woman suddenly gave birth. Her child was born there in the cave under the waters. And as she was lifted from the water, the child's eyes would not open. She was already dreaming, water flowing from beneath her small infant arm. But the woman's stomach did not deflate, and she cried out again as birthing pains filled her body once more. The elders pulled the mother from the pool as she pushed a second daughter, a twin, from her body, this time above the water. The child born underwater, already dreaming, was placed on a stone shelf, her thin arm trickling water. Her mother, clutching her twin to her chest, was led away crying. The cave pools equalized with the birth of the dreaming child, and no longer dropped dangerously. The mother was very distraught, but she occupied herself with caring for her second child. 
the one born away from the waters. She tried to forget the infant she had born in the cave below, that she cried when the water level rose enough for the women to return to purify the poison from it, and she could not bear to look at the shelf above where she knew her small newborn lay lost in the lush world of water. She did not return there for many years. The mother raised her daughter and loved her, but she never spoke of her sibling, high on the ledge in the cave below. For the first five years, she watched her daughter with anxiety and fear, terrified that the waters had tainted her in some way. But the child grew as a normal child would. But the child grew as a normal child would. And finally, after six years had passed, the mother relaxed. Surely there would have been a sign by now. But as the girl grew closer to maturity, she began to tell her mother of things she was seeing in the night. A strange world of falling water and endless seas. Her mother was terrified. Would her other daughter also be taken from her? The infant daughter's body was perhaps too small to bear the stress of the tribe's water needs. She had thought her second daughter would be safe, but now it too wanted to claim her. The waters could not be escaped. The mother tried to shush her child and bid her not to mention these images to anyone. She even shut her own ears and would not permit her daughter to speak to her of these tales. She told her that if she spoke of these things, she would die. She would be taken down below to the caves and she would never return. The girl knew of the caves, as all of the children of the tribe did. She knew it was where the water was hauled up and rationed out to everyone. She saw the fear in the women's faces when they descended the stone stairs, and she saw the vibrancy of their blue-poisoned hair. So when her mother threatened her with the world below, she shut her mouth and kept the night images to herself. But the girl could not forget the things she saw when she closed her eyes. For she was not only called by the water on her own, but by her twin, her flesh and blood molded in their mother's womb, also passed on images from her time as a water vessel. She could not unsee the world of water and dreams. And the night dreams began to change her. She found her feet moving beneath her and walking her down the stone steps to the pool below. She would wake opening her eyes to find herself above the stone shelves. Each night upon waking, she saw that she had come closer and closer to the water's edge. She had never been to the caves as she was not old enough to join the women on their monthly purification. But she felt the sacred nature of this place with its rough walls and poisoned well. Then one night, the girl woke standing at the very edge of the pool, about to fall in. She stumbled backwards, not sure what would happen if she entered the waters but she knew that the next night she would be drawn into the pond and there was nothing she could do to prevent it. What awaited her there she did not know, but this time she looked up and her gaze was drawn to a shelf high above. She climbed up and came face to face with her small sister. She had never had a chance to grow up. Her body had never matured over the years, converting all its energy into dreaming and producing water for the tribe. The sister was still an infant, but her twin knew right away that it was her kin. Then the cave was filled with song as the bones of all the water bringers called out, singing from the souls of the women. They had been left too long, been kept from the sun, in life and in death. They called out to the living twin. She must free them. She must take them above ground. The girl went from shelf to shelf and collected the bones of the ancient women. She climbed up into the dark of the night, stair after stair, up, up, out into the desert air. No one in her tribe ever came up there. The sun was too harsh, the land too extreme. 
No, they stayed down below where it was dark and cool. The girl took one of the women's shoulder blades and began to dig a hole in the sand. Deeper and deeper she dug, the hole growing so large she fell into it. But the sand did not cave in after her, and she did not need to fear suffocation. Finally, once the hole was deep enough, the bones stopped singing their sorrowful music to the girl, and the girl carefully buried the bones of all the water bringers that had come before her twin, and she covered them with handfuls of sand, filling up the hole. She struggled to climb out, but managed to stand free at last. As the sun rose, a stream of water bubbled up from the bones in the sand, and a well surfaced for the first time. Her twin's sacrifice had not been in vain. The tribe would have everlasting water now. The years and decades of women having to sacrifice was now over. They had achieved the depth of their pain and sorrow, giving birth to what they had struggled toward for so long. A source of water that would not end, fueled by their bodies, their dreams, their struggle.